If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Friday, May 3rd, 2019. Tomorrow, Drew, the 4th, I know, Star Wars Day, but also it's the 19th anniversary of Steve Jobs persuading Brad Bird to come work for Pixar. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And as, I... and as you know, Brad Bird is a, a very close friend of mine now, you know, after after my Light the Fuse interview. <laughs> as i would expect you know yes, I, yeah i bring up brad bird because he was i i got to see him speak at the academy of motion picture arts and sciences a, a while back and he had these interesting theories about hollywood and one of them is that hollywood is a big dumb shark that whatever makes money whatever is successful hollywood wants to do again but the problem is they always run, learn the wrong lesson that, you know, for example, if two movies come out in the same summer and they make money, but the leads are wearing red hats, that's the lesson that Hollywood takes away. Ooh, we need to make movie, more movies with red hats. Brad, the guy who brought us Iron Giant and The Incredibles and Ratatouille, and of course, his Mission Impossible movie, he's still out there swinging. Yeah. Can we officially talk about what he's working on yet, or is has that leaked? Uh, no, I, the the musical? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's been pretty open about it on Twitter and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know what it, I mean, we don't know what it is exactly. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's at Columbia, I think. I mean, the last email I sent him, I got this very kind of dark email back that said, Brad Bird is no longer an employee at Pixar. And I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, okay. Yikes, yeah. And, and please disregard the lump in the lawn. That had the instruments are in entirely disconnected pivoting to an entirely different subject here so think about it just last week you and i are talking about pokemon detective pikachu you got to see it you know loved it for the most part pretty good reviews uh too this week i I don't know if you saw i agree i agree you know i mean i know what you said about the last act and all that but i still want to see this and how many of the stories mentioned like hey the video game curse is finally over it is something not so fast folks yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right oh rewind my. yeah yeah sonic the hedgehog have, have you ever seen anything like this i mean no the trailer or the reaction to the trailer all right let's start with the trailer it drops on april 30th and there are some huge effects companies behind this. I mean, Industrial Light and Magic, Digital Domain, Moving Picture Company, and, and of course, Blur Studios. Mm-hmm. Were you expecting that look? No, I wasn't. I mean, I thought I will actually extend my criticism of the trailer beyond mm-hmm. what Sonic looked like and just okay. say the whole movie looks really stupid and bad and flat and horrible. And I just, I don't, I don't understand. What is the budget? I mean, this thing must be like, what, $75, $80 million budget at least. And it looks like that? Yeah. Holy. And, and it's a lot of creative people too. Do you want to, should we talk about who's behind this thing? We first heard in June of 2014, there was a Sonic movie in development. But at this point, 
It's not at Paramount. It's over at Sony. But that's June of 2014, and it's, you know, kind of bubbling along. And then February 12th, 2016, Deadpool comes out. It's directed by Tim Miller. Huge hit. And as happens, after you have a huge hit, you can pretty much write your own ticket out in L.A. And so what does Tim do? Uh, He's previously worked with Jeff Fowler. And we're talking like 12 years earlier on a, a CG animated short called Go For Broke. Pretty cute short. You remember this short, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it was up for the award the same year as Lorenzo. I love Lorenzo. I do as well, but it it wound up losing to Chris Landreth's film, Ryan. But anyway, these guys had wanted to do something together for years, and here's Tim coming off of Deadpool, so he gets Sonic set up, but he's got Blur Studios set up to work on this thing. And the idea is that Chris will be the executive producer, Jeff will be directing, and there's a screenplay being written by Patrick Casey, Josh Miller, and Oren Uziel. But a year, year and a half goes by, and suddenly it's October 2017, and Sonic is now going over to Paramount. They've somehow acquired the rights from Sony, and who put the project into turnaround, and that's not necessarily a bad sign. No, not at all. It's just, these things happen. Yeah. But they view it as a go project. February of 2018, they announced it's going to be released in November of 2019. We start hearing them you know, talk about casting the thing. And in May of that same year, Paul Rudd evidently came into the conversation. But I guess in the end, they cast James Marsden as sort of the, the human lead of the project. How many movies has he been in where he's just like starring next to some kind of anthropomorphic uh, cartoon? Character? I would was about to say, you know, if you think about pop you think about enchanted. enchanted yeah don't get me wrong it, it is a gift to be able to do that to no that's know, to... true it is a skill set i think that not every actor has oh no i would like i would like to see jared leto playing opposite a <laughs> tiny bouncing you know something or other but yeah yeah and then we get the june of 2018 and, and here's jim carrey and announced and initially i thought when they said okay jim carrey is playing Dr. Robotnik, I said, okay, so it's Jim Carrey doing an animation voice. It's like, no, it's live action Jim Carrey. Yeah. I just got to stop here for a moment. So that part of the trailer, did did that work for you? No, did it work for you? (sighs) Jim, you're too funny for this. Well, you've, no. you've, you've, you've told jokes professionally. You know that that was not funny. I was just, I forget who I was just talking with about a Jim Carrey that they were looking to cast him. In fact, when they were doing the original casting for Toy Story, John Lasseter's first choice for Woody was Paul Newman. Oh, wow. And then, well, at that point, he's still being called Lunar Larry. Yes. Was Billy Crystal. Okay. And both of those guys turned it down. So they pivot to Hanks after they don't get Paul Newman. But the interim choice before they went to Tim Allen was Jim Carrey. Ooh. Yeah, he got the offer because, remember, in that six-month window where he did The Mask and mm-hmm. Ace Ventura, and it was like, oh, my God, this guy is amazing. And just, you know, so he'd be perfect for animation. Yeah. And so he, they bring him on board. They start shooting in July of 2018 up in Vancouver. They're shooting, and they still don't have a voice for, for this title character. It isn't until August that they get Ben Schwartz on board. I you know, it, Probably best known for playing Jean Raphael on on Parks and Rec. You and I, of course, know him from 
DuckTales is Dewey. And his third classic 80s character with a blue outfit. He's mm-hmm. Donatello on the new um, Ninja Turtles, Rise oh. of the Ninja Turtles or whatever it's called. Oh, God, you're right. You're or not right. Donatello, Leonardo, Leonardo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the production pushes on. They, they, they finished in Vancouver. They wind up shooting all of Jim Carrey's scenes down in New York and they wrap in October of 2018. And That's very telling that he's like, come to New York and shoot my scenes separately. Okay. <laughs> he could not be bothered, is what I'm trying to say, Jim. He could the, the, not be the, bothered, yeah. All right. So, should we have been paying more attention in December when the teaser poster came out? I mean, it's horrifying still. That was I, the one with his legs on the Empire, on the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. There was one where he was just, it was just his legs, and he was sitting on a bridge, and it was horrifying, for okay. sure. I feel like I should have noticed this. And I'm looking at it. I mean, it's, it's, it's blue. It's lit from behind. Yeah, yeah. Nothing set up that people are going to have this set of reaction to it. But again, trailer drops April 30th. And the production team, when they began working on Sonic, they, they wanted a realistic Sonic. They, they added fur and new running shoes. And they made the eyes separate and gave them a human-like physique. They supposedly used Seth MacFarlane's head uh, the the two films as a, you know a lot of reference to okay you know this is how you know we want him to interact in a real world setting and they were more concerned about people would think that he was running around nude so they were they spent a lot of time talking for us it was always about fur we never considered anything different that's how we were going to integrate him into the real world and make him a real creature and even then miller had to admit that sega was not entirely happy with with sonic especially the eyes and uh-huh. so yeah trailer drops and two days later here's jeff fowler would you care to read the, the tweet oh i'd love to the message is loud and clear you aren't happy with the design and you want changes it's going to happen everyone at paramount and sega are fully committed to making this character the best he can be Hashtag Sonic movie, hashtag gotta fix fast. And you know what the other funny hashtag related story about this was? What? Was that, well, first of all, the trailer on YouTube had like three times as many dislikes as likes. And then the other thing is that Pokemon uh, Detective Pikachu was trending on Twitter Mm -hmm. because of the backlash to Sonic. People were saying how much better that looked. And I actually went out to lunch with, uh, a bunch of people from Warner Brothers the other day, and they were like, we could not believe it, that we were back in the conversation because this trailer was so terrible. Mm. Is that funny? Oh, wow. Yeah. So let's talk realistically here. This movie is, and so far, they they seem to be sticking with their, what is it, November 8th, 2019 release. You know, yes. That's... Six months? Six months? And we are only talking about one character, but we're talking about the character that carries the movie. Mm-hmm. Is it realistic that they can make changes? More to the point, why don't you talk about what you mentioned in... Oh, well, well, you know what? The, the thing was that the first time you really saw him like lit and everything, mm-hmm. it was in a, a packet that was being sent out to licensees and marketing partners and stuff. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to believe that right now in China, mm-hmm. they are already making Happy Meal toys, action figures, bed sheets, all of that stuff that is going to have this version of Sonic. And you know what? It happens more frequently. I had a uh, Kleenex box not that mm-hmm. long ago 
that had the original design for Hey Hey on it mm. from Moana. You know, when he was angry and it was like, oh, this is what happens. Like, you don't finalize the design, but stuff still has to be made and put to market. So I feel mm. like it's going to happen with this big time. I mean, can you think about how much stuff is being produced right now for this movie? And they're going to have to burn it off some way. I mean, do you remember when Good Dinosaur came out and they would do the toy sets and they'd actually include characters that had been designed for the earlier version of the movie? Considering I was an, in- an employee of Disney Consumer Products at the time, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jim. <laughs> no idea. Okay. <laughs> I remember asking people, like, who are these dinosaurs? And they were like, mm-mm, don't talk about it. <laughs> Oh. What dinosaurs? <laughs> oh. Am I wrong to think that this is kind of like the whole snakes on a plane thing where they went back? Uh, the film had been completed, right? And then yeah, they did it was like, shot. Yeah, of five five days of additional scenes just because of what, you know, the reaction online. They, you know, people were so excited, but they wanted campier. They wanted it more fun. And, yeah. Uh, it still bombed, but they had input. Yeah, I mean, to a much bigger degree. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting the effect of social media on a movie that's already been shot. Like, that's crazy. And it's not, it's interesting because it's not some disgraced star that they have to replace or, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that. This is the main character in a family movie. And once again, I'm just going to say Bumblebee is the high, seems to be the high watermark of the, the, did you ever, you saw Bumblebee, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was great. Yeah, and in fact, it, did you see Travis, I guess, is, what is it, the, the $6 billion man? Is that the... Uh, yeah. yeah. That sounds great. I'm just a little more concerned about Leica, but, you know, because... Well... Okay, <laughs> more power to Travis. <laughs> and speaking of having to change out disgraced actors, the news began to break about, I don't want to say poor Jim Cummings, because this is a... This is a divorce case, or, or this is a custody case that's going on right now, but Jim is in court right now battling with his ex-wife over the custody of his two daughters, and it's getting ugly, folks. There's a lot of tough stories coming out, and I, you want to find out the specifics, just Google Jim Cummings and custody case, but this can and probably will get problematic for Disney. I mean, Jim Cummings is is the voice of Winnie the Pooh. He's the voice of Tigger. He's the voice of Pete, uh, let alone, you know, Darkwing Duck. And you were just saying that, what, you were riding on the, the brand new... Oh, yeah, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, the, yeah. The re- there's a scene in the Pirates of the Caribbean where there's a scabrous pirate, and it's mm. Jim Cummings going, <laughs> I need Captain Jack, or whatever... That, mm-hmm. That's a terrible impression, but you you get the idea. But but yep. the fact that he's permeated mm-hmm. attractions as well. And remember when I did my little report from the '90s night, he had recorded a special Darkwing Duck intro for the fireworks show that mm-hmm. was done that night. So he is everywhere. The one place he isn't right now, and it is kind of a surprise, is the Ducktales reboot. Which, as the voice of of Darkwing Duck, I, I kind of surprised they didn't bring him back, but. It has been a long time between new episodes. So whatever happened to Della Duck uh, dropped in uh, the first week of March. You know, so yeah. a lot of us waiting for them to get going again. And what are we supposed to make of this programming event that, that Disney Channel is doing? We've got 
eight episodes of DuckTales dropping in 11 days. Yeah, I don't uh, get it at all. And I'm sure we're going to have like eight months without a single new episode afterwards. That's I, the part that's... Well, you know, we, we, we've already had the show renewed for, for season three, but folks, this show will go live on Tuesday, May 7th, and tonight on the Disney Channel, uh, the first of the new episodes, The Treasure of the Found Lamp, runs, and then there's a new episode on Thursday, there's a new episode on Friday, and then the following week, there's a new episode every night, Monday through Friday. And mm-hmm. I would mention the titles, but to be honest, they actually give away a lot of story. Well, do we think that The Treasure of the Found Lamp is in relation to the movie that came out in the what was that the early 90s Treasure of the lost lamp i wonder because the teaser for it is this wonderful scene where scrooge you know walks into the room with the, with the gin who's traveled from the far east to collect the lamp and he ah, funny thing guy we seem to have misplaced it that appears to be the conceit of the entire episode so they all look like a lot of fun but i've so enjoyed what they do with ducktales i don't want to give too much away other than right. from season one we may get to see lena again and likewise we may pick up with what Della has been up to on the moon but beyond that you're just going to have to tune in for, for between may 7th and may 17th on the disney channel you know we will you know people make fun of us jim on twitter for loving uh Duckdale so much but do they really you know, well you know they say we're we toot its horn quite regularly but just as many people have said, I've watched it because of you two, and I love it. So, what well, about that? Oh, okay. Then I'm happy to hear that. I'm. Then, well, this makes me kind of reluctant. If, if we have that level of power, Drew, <laughs> are we now going to compel people to get on planes and go to London because of the, the, the Prince of Egypt musical? I hope so. This just broke last night, right? So this is the DreamWorks hand-drawn animated film from 1998. You know, with the the score from Stephen Schwartz, and there's always been this discussion about, wow, oh, you know, it has this wonderful, you know, Stephen Schwartz score, and you know, when is somebody going to make a show out of it? And over the last four years or so, there've been a couple of sort of trial balloons. Uh, there was a production up in Saco, Maine, of all places, in 2015. Another out in Silicon Valley in 2017, and then one just last year in uh, 2018 out in Utah, but especially the one at the, I want to say this right, Tuahakan Amphitheater, uh, the emphasis was on it. It was a spectacle. It was a giant show, huge cast, enormous sets, but now it's being prepped to go in the West End, in the Dominion Theater, which mid-size, I want to say. Okay. I wish them well, and if you go, uh, there's actually a a trailer of sorts for the Utah version of the show up on YouTube that I highly recommend checking out. Very colorful. The score is still very strong, but at the same time, it's just sort of like these days, it's all about whether or not a show can tour. And pivoting here to Disney theatrical, we're celebrating this year, the 25th anniversary of the opening of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. And Disney's been commemorating, Disney Theatrical's been commemorating this in a lot of different ways. They brought together members of the cast of a number of the shows on Good Morning America, and they sang this amazing medley of, from, you know, all the hits, uh, and, and, and the not-so-much hits. Josh Strickland was there for Tarzan. <laughs> I saw Tarzan on Broadway. Did you? Yeah. 
<laughs> Where you? were you seated? Yes. Well, I thought I thought that opening was so cool when it's sort of like a top-down view of them uh, it, on the beach. That was it, so cool. It was if you were seated in the first eight to ten rows. You remember right. this? This is in the Richard Rogers, which had a balcony that really stuck out quite a ways. And mm. this is actually how I came on Disney Theatrical's radar. Anyway, I went to one of the early previews of the show. I mean, maybe the first or second preview of the show. And I scored a seat that was virtually in the back row. Uh-huh. And so, yes, it's the opening of the show. And it's like, and for like two minutes, it's like, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? Why is everybody going ooh and aahing? And then finally, you could see Tarzan's parents walking down the back wall of the theater. And that then became, you know, think about how much flying and climbing and jumping there was in Tarzan. And the realization that, wow, half of the people who are in the orchestra can't see half of the stage. Yeah. And for a show with as much flying or swinging or however, this was going to be a problem. And I and I wrote a story after that to the effect of, look, I'm not passing judgment on the show, but I'm kind of passing judgment on the theater that maybe this wasn't the best choice of venue. And Wasn't it supposed to be a theater in the round experience oh, at one point? God, you can actually, if you pick up Mike Sorrell's making of Tarzan on Broadway, they actually show the, the art for the original design it was going to be very much in the Cirque du Soleil style with giant trees holding up the tent and the show basically happened over your head you sat there in the audience and there was a stage in the middle but it was a you know a lot of climbing a lot of flying and it was but in the end Disney was like well how is this going to be affordable and it's like well the only way it's affordable is that if you build two exact sets of tents and sets and the idea is that as this show is touring if you say for example it makes a stop in boston but the thing is you have the show being performed up in portland maine in the first tent while you're setting up the tent in boston and then when the show finishes its last performance in portland the cast climbs in a bus or a plane and they fly down to boston and they're able to start doing performances there in a day or so and then you tear down the, the tent that's in Portland and then take that to, say, Hartford. Because the the setup was, you know, a week to 10 days. And Disney just looked at that business model and said, nah. Right. And opted to go with a traditional proscenium theater. And the show never ran the way it was supposed to. And in fact, you know, every so often I hear that they're kicking the tires of, of a revival. Though the, the more interesting thing is the, the show that, may get a revival before that is Aida, the Elton John musical. Aida, I mean, I remember reading around the time The Lion King came out that mm. Aida was being prepped as an animated movie, correct? My understanding with Aida was it was, they did a lot of development on it, and in the end, well, what, why would we do this animated? Right. Where's the thing that makes this animated? And in the end, it's like, you got to do better than this. I always wonder, too, about the Marco Polo musical that Joss Whedon wrote for, oh. for uh, the animation studios. In the 90s oh. too. You know as well as I do, the problem is that when they spend all that time developing something and then opt not to go forward with it, I mean, uh -huh. you know, for example, that amazing version of Sinbad that Ted Elliott and Terry Ruscio wrote. Right. And you read the treatment for that, and it's like, I would buy a ticket for that movie today. Yeah. It's the notion of we spent all this money, we didn't make the movie, but we certainly don't want somebody to 
take parts of this out and make their own movie and God help it be a success because we didn't make it. So things end up buried in the vault forever. Mm-hmm. You know, and it used to be, I remember talking with, with Don Hahn once about, for example, Frady Cat. And to Don's thinking, Ron and John, and, and he had created, you know, this great Alfred Hitchcock movie with so many, you know, but, but starring a cat. And, and, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is a parakeet. And there were just all these wonderful ideas. And he was hoping, he literally t- told me, he said, you know, yeah, we're putting it on the shelf, but we're putting it on a really low shelf so we could get at it almost instantaneously and get that film up out of the ground if we had a management change. And I don't think what Don had anticipated was that when David Staten got chased out the door, he'd be replaced by John Lasseter, who really wasn't a big fan of, you know, reviving other people's work. So I wonder now, especially with Jennifer calling the shots, I wonder if somebody could maybe, you know, hey, have you looked at Freddy? Take some of the stuff? Yeah. Yeah. That would be amazing. Um, Anyway, uh, just to quickly touch on, swing back to theatrical for a moment, but part of the 25th anniversary, Michael Riddell of the New York Post sat down with Tom Schumacher, uh, the head of Disney Theatrical, and it was like, okay, you know, you've done a lot of shows. What are the ones that you almost did? And he, he summed up right off the, the bat, Winnie the Pooh, only with the script being written by Edward Albee, like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, Edward Albee? Uh, what? <laughs> Seriously, it turns out Edward Albee is a, was a huge fan of the A.A. Milne books, and they had the theatrical rights. Schumacher learned that Albee was a fan, and they evidently went out to lunch, and he said, Edward, if we gave you the rights, what would you do? And Albee spent the entire lunch describing this amazing show he'd do with Winnie the Pooh. And so lunch breaks up and you know and, and Schumacher goes home really excited like oh my god we're, we're gonna do Winnie the Pooh with Edward Albee and the, the very next day evidently Albee's manager's like no we're, we're not doing that he's very busy right now go away don't bother us wow and the other one right as- on the upside we <laughs> potentially avoided another Jim Cummings performance so <laughs> you know, there is that oh well there you go yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the, the other stage show that almost got done was Stephen Daltrey. He was a, the director of Billy Elliot. He wanted to do Dumbo with Disney. And this supposedly really got very far along to the point where Michael Curry, the guy who did the puppets for The Lion King, they, they were putting together mock-ups of Dumbo as a puppet to do on the stage. Oh, wow. But here's the thing, evidently that they were just about to begin workshopping it when Schumacher went to go see an early preview of War Horse, just as it was debuting in London, and it's like, here are these amazing horses that are done on puppets on stage, and he's like, oh crap, it's already been done. Well, tell people tell people who wrote the script for that one, too. Well, yeah, what was it, uh, Michael Shanbon, you know, who, yeah, uh, who wrote-, you know, wrote The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, I mean, uh, Randy Newman was going to do the music. It just kind of kills you that we got within inches, and then for this to be theatrical and new, you know, based especially in a a nineteen, you know, a film from nineteen forty one, you needed a gimmick, and, and unfortunately, War Horse got there first, and and now, on the heels of the Tim Burton version, how many decades will it have to go by before Disney circles back on Dumbo? Oh man, I would kill to read that that yeah. script. Okay, meet me outside the New Amsterdam Theater. I'll bring okay. a cobra. Well. We'll be there. I'll bring you a, a good 
a nice big sandwich or something. <laughs> All right. Okay, folks. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we get back, Drew has some more Toy Story 4 audio to share. We're back. So this is this is the first of many Toy Story audio. That okay. I'm gonna share. But okay. I thought it was I thought it was very interesting for our animation and Disney theme park fans. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but what do you want to start with? Do you want to start with Josh or? This interview is is an interview with Josh, and then he's he's with his two producers, Jonas Rivera mm-hmm. and Mark Nielsen, and we talk about how time works in the Toy Story universe now. Because mm-hmm. I was wondering. You know, the original three movies, the the time is pretty, it's not exactly, you know, the the same amount of years don't go by as mm-hmm. they do in the movies, but it's pretty close. Yep. And it seems like no time has really passed since three. So we talk about that. We talk about where Totoro is. We talk about Tinny, the toy from Tin Toy. And we also talk about whose idea it was to put Figment, the dragon from the Imagination Pavilion, into Toy Story 4. So I first wanted to ask kind of a, this is a little philosophical question, yeah. but how, how is time working in the Toy Story universe mm, now? Yeah. Because the, I mean, the first three were, there were more, there was more time between movies, but yeah. it kept pretty on, on, you know, kind track. Of and his life, yes. Oh, yeah. I see. So this seems to be no, no real time has passed since three, right? And you open with a flashback. So it's sort of interesting. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah a fair the, point. um. The interesting thing is that you know, with the we've done the the um, TV specials yes. and the shorts as well. They do fit in there. If you go from when it goes to you know on his boot and it fades out, goes to black, there could be a couple weeks in between there right. before uh, before it picks up again. So, um, but in terms of like, why did we kind of why did we start right there at the beginning of, or the end of three? Just start right there is because that's the moment. That's the moment of realizing he's in a new place, new location. You know, a uh, new kid, new toys, and it's like that's the that's the pivotal moment of yeah. of stepping into something completely new. So right. it, you couldn't start any later than that; it just wouldn't work. Right. I think it had to be sort of close to that moment because you needed to have Woody in a little bit of a denial. Like it couldn't have been three years later yeah. right. it's so obvious. So it kind of has to be new enough to be this could work, and long enough that the other toys are like, is it though? You know that yeah. he's he's holding it back a little bit. So that was. To our advantage right and is what is the sort of sensation from the three of you in terms of i mean it seemed like three was kind of closing the book this yeah. is obviously reopening that book you've got a new aspect ratio yes. a, new, a new look for every character you know without giving anything away does this not feel like this isn't a final grace note is this a, an opening up of a new sort of thread of this story i think we've We've debated. Listen, we've debated that yeah. openly. Like when yeah. we looked at the first three again, which we did multiple times. One of the things we, we talked about, and it really was, I remember Andrew kind of saying, because I I was honest, I was saying I feel like that ending is so good. In the third one, that the trick is how do you how do you start it back up? And he almost not mad, but he's like, no, that's never been the, the end. That was the end of Andy's story, and that's the external plot. This is about and always has been Woody. Mm-hmm. So that sets up something new. Okay. But I remember talking about it and thinking each of the films ends with an implied future, right? The first one is sort of a joke. There's a puppy. What are we going to do? Cut. You're out. Yeah. The second one, you know, they're okay. They 
persevered. You kind of imply they're going to have a party. A family. And that could have been the end. The third one, they, they get the band back together, survive, and get dropped off. And again, you're sort of implying you could, you could be satisfied with the end of that, mm-hmm. or you could imply, well, they have more adventures or more life where things change. And so it always felt like each one, I guess you could say about any movie, but each one has this implied future. Right. And so whether or not this one you know, is the end or isn't, I, I feel satisfied like, oh, it could kind of be either. It's like if I feel proud as a producer that this is a beginning three act, beginning to middle end movie that feels satisfying. Mm. But it's a big universe with lots of toys and lots of characters and lots yes. of ideas. So, I mean, is that, is that fair? Yeah, the other thing is like we worked on making sure that you don't even have to see the first three to see this to understand this film. Right. It is its own self-contained thing as well. So, right. And the flashback helps set up previous films if you haven't seen them but the I'm very satisfied with the with the end of it and I think it's the same same thing it could end there or it could uh, imply something else why bring Tinny back yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean that could have been any toy sure. and, and I know yeah. that you know there are uh, strange people like me who know that the, the first movie started out as a special based uh-huh. on oh, very short. good yeah um, but why why him and and why there, now well, the it's an antique store so there's right. tons of toys from every tin era toys. and so we're like we got to get tin toys in there that's when we've it's part of the family yeah and we were like let's make let's do a little nod to that and um, the, uh, the there's so many easter eggs in this film that's a, kind of an obvious one but uh, well, also, yeah from the moment we decided to have an antique store be a major set piece for this movie we knew there was just massive opportunities to be able to pull stuff in from other films for this not due to laziness uh, no. We could build those. We could build Tinny actually was a little tough to rebuild him. Tinny did need a rebuild. By the way, it might, this isn't necessarily true, but there's, as you ask it, Bill Reeves, uh, who's our global technology supervisor yes. and one of the godfathers, yeah, was the tall. supervising technical director on Tin Toy. Wow. And so now that, I, now that you ask I, it, it's like, well, yeah, we had had Tin yeah. Toy, because Bill yeah. you know, worked on. Yeah. There's very few people that worked on both Tin Toy and Toy Story 4. Right. Yeah, very few. And canonically, is it the same tin, Tinny from the, the short? Well, I think tin, Tinny from the short, I mean, that never... You mean physically you mean the model? Like the, like the same... And the, no, or the same character. The same yeah, the, the same, 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 same yeah. character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we ever talked about we that. Never, I, say yes. never <laughs> I think so. It yes, probably is. Uh, okay. Yeah. Going in the Pixar you know what? I like yeah. to think yes because he that was a him learning to love a kid and yeah. that's kind of works into the Toy Story yeah. world. But I think what happens, that baby did <laughs> that was that Andy. Toy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that baby was Andy. That baby was Andy. That's yeah. Yeah. They lived in That's Margaret the store owner. Yeah, that's Margaret. <laughs> baby. Uh, I want to talk about giggles because I think it's interesting that she has a 2D face which yeah. is so yeah. cool uh, yeah. can you talk about what it was like sort of working that out yeah we cool. haven't done we've done that a few times with some side characters but we've never done it with like a, a, a main kind of character so it was it was great to see like how far we can push that just because you look at those small toys from the 80s and they have all the quickly you know uh, screen printed faces mm-hmm. on there and um, knowing we were going to be have a character this tiny and have be able to see you know expressions yeah. like okay we need to be able to make that make that clear and also her name's Giggle McDimples she's got to have dimples on there too right. <laughs> you know pixel Jeez. wide right so um, but yeah it was it was first of all like can we do this and we pulled up some other stuff We're like oh we have done it before kind of in the background of Party Source Rex or yeah. something like that you know who he did it for was Tinny the old Tinny was that way oh was, that's right it was oh, a piece really? of geometry that would slide around as opposed to sort of a jaw and a mouth 
Yeah, uh, we were wow. talking about that. I mean, it's completely different now, but that was a projected slideable thing. But yeah, the character team had to build a little system to be able to animate her yeah. because we didn't have something that existed. Were they thrilled to work, be able to they have a 2D? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, they, they loved they it. Loved yeah. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's one Easter egg I noticed. Uh, just from the footage today, which is that Figment is on a, uh, <laughs> on a dragon uh, stand. So, do you want, so and it looks like the happy. same image from Inside Out. It might Mr. be. Mr. Inside Out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can you talk about how he keeps worming his way into this <laughs> Yes. Okay. Talk about please, dude. Who's the fan? Is it, is it I'm yes? a oh. fan of Figment and the Journey to Imagination. <laughs> the original. Uh, yeah. The original. It's kind of, is it you and Pete or you more than Pete? Probably me more than Pete, but we in Inside Out it made sense because um, it was Imagination Land. Yeah. And so we did a paint that we thought that he would be perfect going over the cliff. Right. You know, in Imagination <laughs> Land. And we're really good friends with Tony Baxter, his imaginary right. like, you know, to help him do yes. all that. And so when we were doing the park, I, I don't even think I can get credit for it. I think it was Craig Foster, you know, okay. our art director. Someone pitched it. Like, well, we had Dragon Zone. That yeah, was always Dragon the name Zone. of one of the she games. Okay. There, we're like, yes, yes. So he just worked it in. Then we, <laughs> we, so I was so <laughs> It's amazing. Because yeah. it was one of those, like, no yeah, one but me will see oh, this. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, also, is Totoro still around? Um, not in this film. Okay. I think it was oh, a no. legal license. Yeah, yeah. Totoro's... He's pretty protected, as you would imagine, and yes. we want to respect that. We, we would have been able to do it, but we, with so many characters, yeah, there's a ton, we, yeah. we just thought, ah, let's not. There wasn't a really great yeah. reason to do it, and it would have been a little bit of a hassle, so right. we didn't go that way. Um, was the, were the, this is my last question, but the, are, the, are the dummies at all inspired by the Twilight Zone? Yes. Okay. Twilight Zone, and also the dummy that I had as a kid. Okay. Um, I wanted one so badly, my parents finally got me one for my birthday. His name was Willie Talk. <laughs> a genius. <laughs> and he did. Yeah. Because of with uh, my ventriloquism skills. Yes. And I would chase my younger brother around the house with him and terrify my brother. And then one day he attacked it with a pair of scissors in the eyeball. And Funk. And, and that kind of that destroys the, the, the illusion of, the of life. Of yeah. You know? <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys. It was such a thrill to get yeah. to have you. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk. There's a wonderful interview that Josh just did. And he was, was talking about the whole notion of bringing Bo on the canvas. And, and especially we wanted with this film that, that if you were to ever to sit Woody down and ask him what the most important day of his life was, it would be the day that Bo came back into his life. Right. And geez, talk about pressure, you know, de- delivering on that idea for the story. And it, especially when, when you consider how many different iterations of this film they went through before they finally, you know, found their way into this material. We've heard Annie Potts talk about how 70% of her dialogue was thrown out mm-hmm. and that she had to re-record. I mean, I'll be very interested to see what the story of this movie is. You know, in 10 years, we'll get the real story about what happened. Oh, no but, doubt. No doubt. You know, the footage that I saw at, at Pixar and talking with these guys, I'm, I'm feeling very confident that this is something... Um, really interesting and and to the point about Bo you know throughout the whole press day which I can now sort of openly talk about mm-hmm. they kept reiterating you know that they had a lot of freedom to redesign Bo because she hasn't mm-hmm. been seen in a movie in 20 years mm-hmm. she wasn't she hasn't been in a movie since t- 1999 so they really pushed her and exaggerated her and it's a it's a really amazing looking movie and I can't wait to see the rest of it the other hour that I didn't see We'll keep the content coming out of the Toy Story Long Lead Day for everybody. But I hope you enjoyed that 
audio. Always enjoy you making them jump through their hoops, but did anybody bring up the fact, I mean, face it, the, the way this, the entertainment world works, we're, what, two, three years out from Toy Story 4 airing on Freeform on some Saturday where, you know, they'll start at 9 o'clock in the morning with the original Toy Story from 1995 and then Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, Toy Story 4. Yeah. And is there any, con- what, did they express any concern about, you know, the notion of when you drop Bo from 95 or 99 alongside Bo of 2019 that it's like, she's had a lot of work done? You know, did it- <laughs> No, they actually supplied us with an image that was a picture of Bo from 1995 versus the picture of Bo now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're very proud of the technological work that, that went into it. They're, mm-hmm. I think, happy with the story. I think it's most, I mean, I think it's mostly for nerds like you and I who will notice that this mm-hmm. is a different rigging system on this character or whatever, a different lighting mm-hmm. uh, scenario. But um, what I like about it is the movies, they kind of become more mature looking as they go on, even mm-hmm. if the even if the story isn't that much deep. I mean, they're, I think they're always very impressively sort of deep. But yeah, this one is definitely the most kind of like muscular looking movie of all of them. You know, it's. I think I talked about it before that it's the first widescreen Toy mm-hmm. Story, so it really looks like a movie. Yep. Which is good, too, because, you know, a- after Toy Story 3, mm-hmm. there were the two shorts, or three shorts, Mm-hmm. And the two TV specials, which were very TV. And I know we, you and I both love all of those, st- yeah, all those things. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it's nice to say it like, like, okay, here it is. It's a movie again. It's widescreen. Mm-hmm. It's big. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a cool kind of a mission statement in that regard. We'll be getting more statements from more members of the creative team in, in the weeks ahead. Thanks to, again, all of the great audio you, you've scored at the long lead and, who knows what you'll get as we, you know, get to the other events here. So yes, but if people can't wait for more Drew Taylor goodness, they have your other podcast. Yes, uh, I have Light the Fuse, which mm. is we did our mailbag episode this week. We've got a great episode starting next week with Barney Berman, who mm. is the makeup guy from Three. He actually won an Oscar for JJ's Star Trek. Oh, and he okay. actually tells a really interesting story that connects Star Trek to Star Wars, which I won't give mm. away here. Okay. But I also was just on Dan Z's Coffee with Kenobi. He was just talking about you tell some amazing stories about your years covering all sorts of Star Wars projects. And yeah, yeah, it was kind of, it was fun. I thought I talked too much, but you know, you'll you oh, can listen to it, the, Jim, the, and tell the, me. There is no such thing. <laughs> that's half the reason you and I bonded is that we can't. Neither of us can shut up. That's true. Um, that's very so, true. And and speaking of not being able to shut up, you had mentioned the, the too many podcasts that I do. We have. Disney Dish with Lentesta. We have the one you just mentioned, looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. In addition to Marvelous Disney, uh, which I do with Aaron Adams, we also have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. That's my favorite therapy session of the week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, do we, how do we talk to each other civilly and also bring up Zoom Zooms? It's an amazing experiment. And the hours of therapy afterwards certainly help. Uh, and... <laughs> Finally, Universal Joint with with Dustin Fuse. Drew and I will be back with another episode of Fine Tuning next week. But till then, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.